This morning, we're going to begin a little mini-series in the middle of the larger Exodus series, and we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20. So go ahead and open your Bibles up right now, if you will, Exodus chapter 20. Now, before we jump in, though, I'm going to have to do a little work to get your mind ready to receive these, these lessons and these, this journey through the Ten Commandments. Uh, but I, I'm just, I'm amazed by something. I, I'm amazed by some people's fight to be here at church to, to gather with the, with the saints uh, we have, I have a friend over here named Chris who uh, was shot with a bullet uh, three weeks ago, Chris, is that right? Uh, he was helping somebody that was over on the side of the road and somehow there was gunfire and it went through the tail of his truck, through the back of his truck, through a back seat and right into his back and landed in his stomach and to have had this massive cut right here on his abdomen to open it up and take the shrapnel out and three weeks later, He's sitting down front to worship Almighty God. And I just, I'm, man, praise God. I know you do it. You told me, like, I'm just ready to be at church. I'm, I'm ready to be with the people of God. That's what you call hunger to be with God. Oh, that all of us had that kind of hunger. Man, I, we would be beating people away with sticks right now just to get a seat if we all had that kind of hunger. But what I hope you arrive at at the end of the day is that kind of hunger. Not, not just for church attendance. Let me be clear about that. A hunger for God. Like when you're, when you're done with this thing, you're going, I just, I want more of God. I want to do more for his glory. That's, that's my hope for all of us. And I appreciate, Chris, the Lord using you to set an example for us. I think the Ten Commandments are going to help us with that, but we have to understand them the right way if we're ever going to be able to live them out, if they're ever going to create hunger in us. And so here's what I want to do. I want to teach you this morning, and for the next three weeks, this little mini-series, I'm going to teach you the most important lesson you will ever have in your life. I'm going to teach you how to love God the right way, because there is a right way and a wrong way to love God, and I want to teach you the right way to love God. Now, the moment I say that, I know there's a little bit of a feeling like, there can't be like a wrong way to love God. It's just, it's just your heart. It's just love God. That's all you got to do. But I, I really do want to suggest to you that there is a wrong way to love God. You have to love God the way he wants to be loved, not the way you want to love him. And those are different. I, any of you in here in a relationship with, uh, with someone, raise your hand if you're in a relationship, like a romantic relationship with somebody, like married or dating or something like that. Some of you are like, I don't know, are we in a relationship? I mean, should I raise my hand? <laughs> I, did, I didn't mean to make that confusing, I'm sorry. But if you're in a relationship with somebody, what you learn after you've been in a relationship with them for a while is, is something called love language. Any of you heard of the five love languages? Raise your hand. I kind of want to know. A pretty good amount of you have heard of love languages. Some of you haven't. It's a simple concept. It's the idea that we have a certain language by which we give and receive love that's natural to us. And there, there are five main ones. It's a quality time. It's uh, words of affirmation, acts of service, physical touch, and giving and receiving gifts. Those are the, the five main ways that people have a tendency to give and to interpret love. But the problem is, if you want to make somebody feel loved, you have to love them not the way that you naturally give love, but the way they naturally receive love. For example, let's say there's a wife, and her love language is acts of service, but she's married to some dude whose love language is words of affirmation. So let me tell you what it looks like. She is working her tail off. She's got a full-time job. She gets home. 
She cooks dinner. She does the dishes. She does laundry at night. She's doing all this work because she's trying to love on her family. And she's got the sorry dog husband following around going, baby, you are so amazing. The way you do that dinner, it was incredible. And the way you fold those clothes, baby, like you're like, you worked at the Gap or something. That's incredible (laughs) what you can do. I'm so proud of you. I'm so glad to be married. He thinks he's filling her love tank. And she's going, would you shut up and fold some laundry with me? Would you do a, a, a dish for once in a while? He thinks he's loving her. She feels completely unloved. Why? Because you have to love the other person the way they perceive love, not the way that you want to give it. Perfect example huh, of this that, that would be so easily misunderstood is somebody whose love language is giving and receiving gifts. So, so let's say it's the husband again. His love language is giving, receiving gifts, but he's married to somebody who's quality time. And so he gets up at like six in the morning, goes to the 24-hour Kroger so he could buy chocolate and flowers and a note for his wife, just out of nowhere. He's just gonna love on her. And so he goes and and right by the coffee pot because he knows when she wakes up at seven, that's where she's gonna go. And he writes a note on there of love and everything, puts the chocolate, put the flowers right there by the coffee pot. She wakes up, he's already off at work because he's got a lot to do. And he just knows, like he's driving to work going, dude, she's gonna be so impressed with me. She's going to love me so much. She wakes up, goes to the coffee pot, sees a note, and goes, that sorry dog wouldn't even have a cup of coffee with me. He thinks he can buy my affection by leaving these notes up here. I just wanted to sit and have coffee. I'm not saying that's what we've dealt with. I'm not, I'm not earthing my problems uh, to you guys. I'm just saying that, that could be a scenario that would take place with someone. The husband thinks he's loving the fire out of his wife, and the wife's going, I just want you to be with me. You see, you can't love somebody unless you know their language with which they receive love. Now, this is not a marriage help sermon, although many of us need a marriage help sermon. This is not what this is about. This is about God. And here's what I want to remind you of. God is a person. He's three persons, Father, Son, Spirit. But he has personhood about him. Now, he's not a human, but he does have emotions. He has a love language. He actually has a sixth love language. And he makes it very clear in the Bible. He most feels loved when we obey him. I wanna, we're going to be in Exodus 20, but I just want to prove this to you before we jump in. I want to read just three quick verses from John 14. Here Jesus, who is the very image of Almighty God in the flesh, showing us the character of God. Listen to what he says, how he reveals the character of God. John 14, 15. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Just a few verses later, verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. A couple of verses later, verse 23, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. It's like a drumbeat, just boom, 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 saying, it's not hard. This is how I feel loved. Obey me. Keep my commandments. Do what I ask of you. Because when you do that, that's how I feel most loved. Now, here's why this matters so much. We're about to go into 10 commandments that if we think we do these commandments to earn God's love, we'll completely miss the whole point of them. We don't do the 10 commandments to earn God's love. We follow the 10 commandments to respond to God's love by loving him back according to his love language, the way he wants to be loved. I I wanna help you see through the journey that we're gonna take that at the end of the day, God just wants you to know, I love you, here's how I want you to love me back. And if you understand that concept, we can dig into the Ten Commandments. Now, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at just the first three. 
Uh, originally, I was going to do a, a sermon over all Ten Commandments, and I realized we're going to miss who God is if we just rush through it. So this week, we're going to deal with Commandments 1 through 3. Next week, I'm going to parse out just the Fourth Commandment, the Sabbath. We're going to spend a whole Sunday on the Sabbath because I think many of us need to relearn rest. And then we're going to finish the last week with the Fifth through the Tenth Commandments, the ones that deal with people. And what you'll discover if you look at the commandments, as they're breaking up in the first four, which are love God, and the last six, which are love other people. And this is the very thing Jesus said is the most important. He said, what, what are the commandments that matter? Love God, the Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one, love your neighbor as yourself. The Ten Commandments just fit into these two categories. So we're going to look at the first three, and then the first two weeks we'll cover all four of the first ones. So we're going to be just looking at verses 1 through 7 of Exodus 20, and we're going to see what it teaches us. So Exodus 20, beginning in verse 1, says this. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, am the, I the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So three quick commandments. Don't have any other gods besides Yahweh, the true God. Don't have any carved image that you bow down to. And don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now these three sound simple enough, but they're a little confusing because some of them sound very, very similar. The first and the second one sound almost identical. Don't have any other gods beside me, and then don't bow down to a carved image. Like, isn't that the same commandment? But I, I really want to show you how they're different because you're going to learn some nuances of the character of God. Because remember what I said, the, the Ten Commandments aren't the means by which you make God happy and make him love you. They're the means by which he wants to be loved back. And so as he explains this to us, he shows us his character. The Ten Commandments are ten glimpses of the character of Almighty God. And the reason you know they're based on character is because they are born from a verse that is all about the character of God. Verse 2. Verse 2 is a preamble to the Ten Commandments. I want you to look at verse 2 again with me. And listen to how it reflects the character of God. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He says, I am. So he's talking about who he is, his character. And he says something profound. Now, this is the most important thing of the whole series. He says, I have already brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, here are the Ten Commandments I want you to obey. He says, I have saved you. Therefore, this is how I want you to respond. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, if you obey the Ten Commandments, then I will save you. He doesn't say, if you follow these next commandments to the letter of the law, then I'll finally love you. He says, I already love you. I just want you to love me back. The whole Ten Commandments are based on this particular aspect. God already loves us. He just wants us to love him back. Now, I, I want to be like, some of you will sleep during this sermon. I just know it. Some of you watching online are already asleep on the couch. I know it. But I, I, I want to ask you to wake up for the next three minutes. Just give me three minutes. That's all I ask for. It's the most important thing. Your entire Christian faith can crumble if you do not understand this truth. You do not have to make God love you. He already loves you. 
You just have to respond to his love. You see, if you make the Ten Commandments, the law of God, all these rules and regulations, the means by which you get God to love you, at the end of the day, you're trying to control God. You're saying, all right, God, I'm going to do what I need to do to make you love me and bless me. And if I do all this, you have to love me and bless me. That puts me in the driver's seat. I just got to make sure I obey the rules and God has to bless me. God has to love me. And so many of us use, we don't even recognize this happening to control God, where we treat him like a genie, like I'm going to obey the commands, rub my lamp, and then I get my three wishes. But God is no one's genie. He didn't do what we want just because we obey a number of rules. And the best news you'll ever hear is you don't have to obey a bunch of rules to get him to love you. Romans 5.8, one of the best verses in the entire Bible. It says that God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't say... Christ died for us when we cleaned our act, our act up, started going to church, stopped cussing so much, stopped sleeping around, stopped doing all that bad stuff. Then, he, no, no, when we were still sinners, and it doesn't say when we were just like micro sinners, or kind of medium sinners, but not major sinners. No, any kind of sin, he died for it. And he demonstrates his love for us in that while we are wrecked in our sin, Jesus Christ still died for us. You don't have to make him love you. He already loves you. All you have to do is respond to it. 1 John 4.10, beautiful verse. In this is love, not that we have loved him, but he first loved us and gave his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Here's what I want you to hear. Any love you have for God hinges on your understanding of how much he loves you. You can't force yourself to love God, but you can receive how much he loves you. And the more you inhale his love, the more you naturally exhale his love. You love him back according to the measure that you understand his love for you. So the most important thing you can do today and any other day is to remember just how much he loves you. Now, when you understand the Ten Commandments, it's not the means by which you earn God's love, but just the love language with which you love God back, then you're able to see the character of God in them. So now that we got that straight, we're going to jump into the first one. Verse 3 it says this, you shall have no other gods before me. Or many of you have a footnote. It says, no other gods beside me, like anywhere near me. He's saying, I want to be above all other gods. Now, I want to make sure this is really clear to you, what it says and what it doesn't say, because people get confused. It doesn't say, there are no other gods besides me. He says, I don't want you to have any other gods before me or besides me. I think what he's doing here is telling us that there are real powers that vie for our attention that we have to be aware of and we have to prioritize God above them all. If you were here last year, and even if you weren't here, you should go back and listen to the messages when we went through the 10 plagues. It was around this time last year where we looked at the 10 plagues as they were getting set free from their slavery in Egypt. And I taught you that every single one of the plagues was an attack on a certain Egyptian God. It was, it was coming after Ra, the sun God, or Osiris, or all the other gods that were there. And it was showing that God, Yahweh God, could beat the Egyptian gods on their own turf at their own game. He wasn't saying that those other gods weren't real powers, demonic powers. He was saying he's above them all. Now, uh, when you come back to this one, you recognize what God is saying isn't like that. There's no other divine power out there. He's saying there are a lot of things that are vying for your affection right now. And I want you to love me above them all. This is really a commandment about priority. He's saying, I want to be the highest priority of your life. And if I'm not, you've made an idol out of whatever that thing is. John Calvin, a number of centuries ago, famously said, the human heart is an idol factory. We make idols out of everything. 
We make idols out of our children when we say, I'm going to provide for you, and that becomes the dominant thing in our life, even more than faith and community. We make idols out of work when we say, well, I don't got time for Christian things. I got, I got work to do. We make idols out of possessions, idols out of games, idols out of sports, whatever. You name it, we make idols out of it. I believe our greatest danger for the majority of you, listen to me right now, is not that you're going to bow down to Buddha or that you're going to bow down to Allah or Vishnu or Shiva or something. It's not that you're going to bow down to a false god that is in some other religious system. It's that you're going to make something else a priority in your life. And you will have made a false god that you are creating above the true god. God is saying, I'm a jealous God. That's my character. I want you to love me above everything else. And we have to love God how he wants to be loved. He wants to be the priority. He expects to be the priority. That's the first commandment. But the second one, it sounds almost identical. Because it says, you know, you have no idols that you're going to bow down to. Wait, 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 I thought we covered that with the first one. Well, I actually think it's the differences between the first and the second that show you how to apply it. They show you the character of God. So I want to go back to the second commandment, and I want you to read it again so we can dig into it. Verses 4 through 6 says this. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So don't make any carved image anything in a likeness of creation, and bow down to them. Again, it sounds like he's saying, well, that's an idol. Don't worship a false god. But here's the difference between the two. The first commandment is don't worship the wrong god. Don't have any other gods besides God. Don't worship the wrong god. The second commandment is don't worship the right god the wrong way. Because the very threat they had of making this idol wasn't really of the Egyptian gods or the Canaanite gods. It was of Yahweh. They wanted to make idols of Yahweh God. If you've read the book of Exodus, then you've covered chapter 32. We're going to get there after a while. And chapter 32 is this crazy story when Moses goes up to the mountaintop to meet with God and the people freak out because he hadn't come back down. And so Aaron leads the people to throw all this gold and they make a golden calf. But notice what they do with the golden calf. Aaron says to the people, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. Worship him. He wasn't saying this is a different God. He's saying this is Yahweh. Bow down to him. Their greatest threat was to make idols for Yahweh because that's all the ways they'd seen worship take place in the nations around them. And they wanted to worship God that way because it felt the most natural. And what he's saying with the second commandment is you don't get to choose how to worship me. I tell you how to worship me. And it's equally dangerous to worship the right God the wrong way. Now, when you, when you think about this truth, the application becomes completely different. I, I'm amazed by how quick we are to worship the right God the wrong way. What, what you got to remember about the Israelites is they were surrounded by nations that made carved images. All the Egyptian deities had their carved image they could bow down to. All the Canaanites and the Jebusites and the Amorites and the Hittites had their carved images that you could bow down to. They were surrounded by people. The only worship they'd ever seen was bowing down to a carved image. And they're basically saying, God, we don't know how to worship you unless we do it like everybody else. We want a carved image. God was saying, I refuse to let you because the moment you make a carved image, you're going to think I'm part of creation. But I stand above creation. You don't get to do that no matter how bad you want to. 
I don't know if there are any parents uh, in the room who struggle with this, uh, but when you have young teenage kids and uh, they're heading through elementary and on, parents give their children telephones, cell phones at different ages, or they let them watch certain movies at different ages. And it's the hardest thing in the world when you have a certain boundary for your children to protect them, and they come back and say, all my friends get to watch that. All my friends have a phone. I'm the only kid in all of school, in the whole world probably, that doesn't have a cell phone, daddy. Everyone else is doing it. Why can't I? This is exactly what the Israelites are doing right here. All the other people get to make idols and bow down to their gods, get to see something. Why can't we? Listen, this understanding the, the second commandment this way helps you, helps you really grasp the danger. Here's the danger point. There are so many people who are surrounded by a world right now that says, I don't want to have anything to do with the institution of the church. That's just a bunch of hypocrites. It's so stuffy. You come in a room, you got to put up with like 40 minute message by this dude who just keeps talking and talking and talking. Give up a Sunday morning. No, you know, like I worship God out in nature. My wife and I were finishing up a movie last night and there was a scene in the movie where this guy is like praising mother earth out in nature. And uh, he's talking about, uh, it was a pretty funny scene, but just how mother earth needs to be protected and how great she is and how grateful he is. And like you, you do realize we're surrounded by new age spirituality. And there are so many people who look around at that and they kind of adopt that mindset. Man, I don't need to go to church. You know, I just like, I love God in my own way. I love Jesus, but I kind of do it my private way. So I, I would prefer to just go to a mountaintop and look out. That's how I most worship God. I want to stand by the ocean and see God. That's how I most worship. Or, you know, I'd, I'd rather just like walk around praying or listen to some sermons on podcasts. Like that's how I do my thing. That's how I worship God. That's how I feel the most authentic to me. Here's what I want to say. I love it that we can discover the beauty and the majesty of God on a mountainside. I'm the same way with you. I see God when I stand by the ocean side. I love it that we would want to walk and pray and listen to sermons on podcasts. That's, that's great. But if that's the only way we worship God. We're not really loving him. Because in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, it says, we should not give up the habit of gathering together as the Lord has commanded. And so when we don't gather together with God's people, we're not actually loving him the way he wants to be loved through obedience. And it doesn't matter how much we say we love God. If we're not obeying God, we're not loving him the way he perceives love. And I know some people going, but you don't get to tell me how I worship God. You're, you're right. I don't get to tell you how to worship God, but God gets to tell you how to worship God. And he said we're supposed to gather together. Now, I, I, I know, like, you're in the room right now. <laughs> I, I know it. Chris came after a bullet wound and is in the room right now. So I, I know, I know I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. I, I know you guys get it. Y'all are here. And it's actually a little fun fact for you. Um, you're delighting the heart of God right now. Did you know that? You're obeying his command to gather with the people of God. And when you obey him, you speak to him in his love language. By you gathering together with the church, you're actually loving God. So praise God, high five yourself, that's awesome. But there's a danger for you right now. There's a danger that you can still love God the wrong way by thinking this is enough. All right, I did my church. Jason's sermon was extra long and I put up with it. I sang the songs. I came forward for prayer. I mean, I did all the different things you're supposed to do. Check. I have loved God. I've worshiped him well. And then you move on with your life. And God says to you, no, but I, I want you to be a mentor in a school. And I, I want you to love on a child who 
who has done nothing to earn your love, or I want you to go serve in the children's ministry, or I want you to be radically generous. I mean, I want you to give up that vacation you were planning on so you can go on a mission trip to take the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And you're going, whoa, slow down, God, slow down. I went to church. I, I did my thing. I put in my time. I'm good to go. I went twice this month, Lord. I mean, come on. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to say, this is how I want to love you, God. I'll fit you into the box. I even went to community group. I mean, I, I did that this week. I'm, I'm putting you in this little box. I mean, what more could you possibly want? And God says, I want radical and complete obedience. That's how I feel loved. We don't get to tell God how we're going to worship him. He tells us how we're going to worship him. And he says, it's beautiful that you gather together as a church. I want you to do that, but it's not enough. I want you to be radically, completely, immediately obedient to the things I ask you to do. That's how I feel worshiped. We don't get to worship God the way we feel like worshiping him. We worship God the way he tells us to worship him. Because we can end up worshiping the right God the wrong way if we're not careful. That's what the second commandment's at. But there's a reason why he gives us that second commandment. Because he's worried about his reputation, that's why. You see, when, when we don't obey God, when all we do is church, and then we go out and live the other six days of our week completely selfishly for ourselves, we give God a bad reputation in the city we live in. And God is way too concerned about his own reputation to let that happen. That's actually what the third commandment is about. Go, go to verse 7. I want to finish up with the third commandment. He says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless, who takes his name in vain. So this particular commandment is probably the most misunderstood of the Ten Commandments. And the other ones kind of get easier, like don't murder, that's pretty simple, don't commit adultery, stuff like that. But this particular one, I have always heard my whole life, it's just don't, like, don't use the, the word God in the wrong way. And so, like, don't even get close. You know, if somebody says, Gershdern, whoa, no, slow down, buddy. You're getting too close. I, we teach our kids not to say gosh because it's too close to God. We say goodness or something else, which by the way, that's a good practice to help our kids not flippantly use the word God to understand. The Jewish people actually will say, uh, they'll say Hashem instead of Yahweh, which means the name. Like they won't even say the name. They just say the name. I pray to you, Hashem. I pray to you the name, that the name you would do this because they're so careful not to misuse the name of God. That's great. But this is so much bigger than just that. Because ultimately, it's referring to the reputation of God. Think about it this way. I love my wife deeply. If I tell her, baby, I'd be willing to do anything to protect your life. That means one thing. But if I say I'd be willing to do anything to protect the name of my wife, that means something totally different. If I say I'll do anything to protect my wife, Virginia, that means I'll take a bullet for her, the train coming, I'll push her out of the way, I'll take it myself, I'll do whatever I can to protect her. But if I say I'm willing to do anything at all to protect the name of my wife, Virginia, that means I'm going to stand up for her reputation. If anybody tries to say something against her, I'm going to be there to protect her reputation. If somebody puts a charge against her, I'm going to stand in the way and say, don't you accuse my wife of anything. I'm going to protect her reputation by protecting her name. Well, when you come back to the third commandment, when it says, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain, he's saying, don't mar the reputation of our God. Now, when you understand the commandment this way, it gets so much easier to see how we screw it up. The way we mess this up is we take the name, Jesus, and we claim to be followers of Jesus, and then we go out and we live nothing like Jesus. He was generous. He was selfless. He was kind and gentle, and we go out in the world and we're selfish and we're mean and we're cruel, self-centered, and the world goes, 
I don't like you people. I see Jesus over here, and I see you over here, and they're nothing alike. They see hypocrisy, and they reject the church. You want to know how we take the name of the Lord our God in vain? We put on our Christian mask on Sunday and come to church, and we live like hell on Monday. That is taking the name of the Lord in vain. The number one reason why there are people who are unwilling to be a part of the church but there's, there's some of you watching online right now and you're not willing to come gather together for this very reason because you don't want to be rubbing shoulders with a whole bunch of hypocrites and that's all you've ever seen. The people outside will tell you, it's not that I have anything against Jesus. He's actually pretty cool. I've just met a whole bunch of Christians and I don't like them. Because we, we're known for what we stand against. We're known for incongruency and hypocrisy. Inconsistency with who Jesus is and how we live our lives. And therefore they push away and they say, I don't want to have anything to do with Christianity. We've marred the name of Jesus. And our God is way too jealous for his name to let that happen. And so his character says, do everything you can to protect my reputation. If you're going to say one thing on Sunday morning, keep saying it on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. If you're going to say you believe something, live it out every single day of the week. Be consistent so people can know who I am. This is the reason why obedience is so important to God. Because when we obey him, we show the world his character. And let me tell you about the character of our God. He is a loving God like no one else. That's why he's so jealous for his character. I want to finish looking back at verses 5 and 6 again. I want you to understand why our God can be a jealous God and still be pure as he does it. Look back at verses 5 and 6. He says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Notice what he's saying. He said, I'm jealous. Yes, I'm jealous. I protect my reputation, but here's why. Because I want the world to know how loving of a God I am. Yes, I'll, I'll bring punishment for the sins and iniquity of people to a third and fourth generation, but that's just a little molehill. Let me tell you about my steadfast love. It's to a thousand generations overflowing in this great Hebrew word called kesed. It's a word that means loving kindness. It means steadfast love, the mercy of Almighty God that won't end. It was this aspect of God that made him different from all the other gods in the world. Remember, I told you how different God was than all the other gods, but this was the defining characteristic because in the ancient world, all the gods were known for being temperamental. Your one goal in life, if you believed in divine power, was not to tick off the gods. Because if you made the Egyptian gods mad, the Canaanite gods mad, the Greek gods mad, all those people, that's when they start punishing you. They throw down lightning bolts, they bring drought, they bring floods, they cause you to miscarry, somebody gets sick, and your one job is just don't tick off the gods. And whatever we gotta do, we, we gotta give them food, we gotta sacrifice a child, whatever we gotta do, just don't tick off the gods. Because they knew the gods were angry and mean and cruel. All of the gods were this way, except one, Yahweh. And Yahweh says, let me tell you who I am. I am a God of steadfast love that is enduring, that is enduring, that will never, ever die up. My love will remain for you. All the gods, yeah, they may be angry, mean, but I'm a God of love. And I want the world to know it. The whole storyline of the Bible is showing us what Chesed is all about. You have this moment right now, and he's already rescued them from their slavery in Egypt, not because they deserved it, but just because he's a loving God, because he had made a promise to Abraham. 
And when he brings them out, they wander around in the wilderness for 40 years because they keep disobeying God. And yet God is still faithful because of his steadfast love. Brings them into the promised land under Joshua. They get into the promised land. They start disobeying God over and over and over. He brings them a king after his own heart, King David, to show them his grace and his love. And then after subsequent kings, they start to rebel again and they have all these troubles and they get conquered by Assyria and Babylon is falling to pieces except God saves a remnant because he loves them. Until the time would come when God says, it's time for me to come to earth. And he took on flesh and he came to this peasant mom born in this small little city with a bunch of animals in a feeding trough and his name was Jesus. God in the flesh saying, I'm willing to come to this earth to save you because you're not going to be able to save yourselves. And I'm willing to put my arms on a cross and let nails go through my hands and my feet to pay the penalty of your sin. Why? Because I love you. Everything he does in the whole storyline of the Bible is to show us what Chesed is all about. Love. God has a steadfast, unending love for every one of us. Let me tell you why that matters. You don't have to do anything to make him love you. He already loves you. All you have to do is respond to his love. This is why God gives us the Ten Commandments. This is why he says, honor me above everything else. Obey me. I want the world to know how good of a God I am, that I'm gracious and kind and forgiving and gentle. And when you obey me, they get to see it and they come to me and they get to experience my love. I want to conquer the hearts of humanity by loving them to a place where they trust me. All we have to do is receive his love and love him back. So that's my question for you. Do you love him? I mean, do you, do you love him the way he wants to be loved? Which leads to my real question. Do you obey him? I mean, do you do, you do what he asks you to do? Or is it quick, immediate, complete obedience? Or is it kind of wishy-washy obedience? I obey a little bit over here, but I'm really struggling over there. I mean, if you were to define your life, would you define it by radical obedience to God? Because if you wouldn't, by the way, we were praying in here on Friday morning for you guys, that in this precise moment, the Spirit would reveal to you disobedience, not to make you feel heavy, not to make you feel beat up, but to show you what's going on. If there is disobedience in your life, there is always one cause. You are not recognizing the love of God for you. Because your love toward God always hinges on your reality, your understanding of his love for you. You cannot force yourself to love God, but you can receive his love. And when you receive his love, you can't help it. You'll begin to love him back. So disobedience is always a sign that you are not properly understanding God's love for you. So where's it at? Where's the problem in your life? Why are you not understanding his love for you? Well, it depends. There are two types of people in the room this morning. Two types of people watching online right now. One, you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You've accepted his love, but you've forgotten how much he loves you. Or you've never come to believe he could actually love you in the first place. You've never accepted his love. One of those two things is going on right now. And I think we need to respond to either one of them, depending on where we are. I want to deal with the first group. There are many of you in the room. I recognize your faces. Uh, many of you, I've, got, I've had the privilege of baptizing. I know you've come to express your faith in Jesus Christ. You believe that he loves you. But there's this thing that happens in life where sometimes it gets really hard to see how much God loves us. It could be because you've sinned. Like you, you've just done something terrible and you feel like such a hypocrite. Like how can I say I love God after the thing I've done? And it makes you feel unlovable. It makes you feel like, oh, God must be so frustrated with me. 
And so you feel a distance because you're not remembering that he didn't love you because you obeyed him. He loved you because his son obeyed him. All you've done is claimed that love in Christ. So you didn't earn it. You can't unearn it. You've just forgotten how much he loves you. And what you might need to do this morning is just tell yourself, my God loves me in the middle of my sin. All you have to do is say, I confess my sin. I confess what I've done wrong. But God, I remember how much you love me. Restore to me the sense of your love for me. Maybe in a moment you just need to bow down where you are and confess your sin and say, I've let this distract me from your love. Or maybe you need to come bow down on the steps and say, I've let sin make me feel unlovable, but I know that you love me anyway, God. Maybe you just need to come in repentance and remember his love. Or maybe, maybe it's not sin. Maybe it's a weight, a burden in your life right now. Because there are some of you and you're here this morning and it feels really hard to see God's love when you're going through what you're going through. There's a side of you going, like, I, I know, I know God loves me, but man, why if he's all powerful? Why if he's so good, would he let me go through this? Why would he let my loved one die? Why would he let me suffer this loss? Why would he let this relationship fall apart? Why? And you're looking at your circumstance and it doesn't feel like God loves you. Here's what I want you to remember. Your circumstances don't show you the love of God. The cross shows you the love of God. And you might have to go back to faith and say, I remember why I believed in Christ in the first place. If my God would die on a cross for me, I know he loves me. And so instead of not feeling loved by God because of my circumstances, with a bold step of faith, I'm going to take the circumstance to the Father because I believe that he can handle it and he loves me. And so maybe you need to come forward and let somebody pray for you in a moment and say, here's my issue. I've been letting this thing make me feel unloved by God, but I remember he loves me. And I want to take this to God and say, oh God, would you do something with my situation? Would you show me your love? Prayer can be the means by which you reclaim your confidence in God's love for you. So maybe you'll need that prayer. I want to encourage you to get your heart ready to come. But I want to talk to that one last group. This is the one I'm most afraid of. There are some of you and you have not yet accepted God's love because you just don't believe God could love somebody like you. I'm going, Jason, if you only knew the magnitude of my sin. I, I know, I hear you, Jason, and I know you're talking to the majority of people in here, but they haven't done what I've done. They haven't screwed up the way I've screwed up. There's just, there's no way God could ever love a person like me. And I know when I say that, there are some of you going, well, you're talking about me, and you think you're the only person in this whole room when there are dozens, if not hundreds of people suffering this exact same thought. But I want to say something to you as kindly and as humbly as I can. It is the most arrogant thing in the world to say that your sin is so bad that not even God can cover it. To say, God, I know you're all powerful, but my sin is too much for you. Let me tell you, there is only one sin that God will punish for all eternity and is completely rejecting him for your entire life. As long as you have breath in your lungs and Christ has not returned, you have the opportunity not to commit that sin and to humble yourself and say, God, I've thought that this disqualified me, but I believe that you can love me even in my brokenness. And I choose to receive your love and have you transform me. God, I want to obey you. God, I want to be different. And if, if all I have to do is receive your love, then I'm in. I choose to trust you today that you love a screwball even like me, God. And I give myself to you. And here's the best part about it. If that's your decision today, then you have a chance to do something to make God smile. You have a chance to obey him. Remember, I told you God's love language. He made it clear for us is obedience. 
He says, I feel most loved when you do what I ask you to do. Well, let me tell you what the word of God says. It says, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Baptism is the first step of obedience to God. The chance we have to delight the heart of God, to love him in a way he feels most loved. And there are some of you who are here and, and you've been journeying through this. You know you need to take the step of faith, but you keep putting it off, waiting for all the stars to align, waiting for some feeling to happen. And it's time for you today to say, no, I'm going to obey my God. I choose to receive his love. He loves me even in my sin and brokenness. I repent of it. Jesus, come take over. And then you can walk down front, let us know, and we can counsel with you and get you ready, get you a Jesus is my place t-shirt, and you can stir the waters of this baptistry today. And I was praying around this baptistry, and this picture of God looking down from heaven with a smile on his face overcame me. As people stir the waters, saying, I choose to obey you today, because I want to love you, God, the way you want to be loved. You just got to be willing. And today's a chance for you to do so. I'm going to invite you to stand up right now, if you will. I'm going to ask the prayer team and pastoral staff to come around the front to be ready for you. If today you're saying, I'm ready, I'm ready to place my faith in Jesus Christ. I'm ready to obey. Today's the day. I want to start the semester out right. I, I want to be on fire for Jesus. I, I want the world to know I love him because he first loved me. Then you come let us know. We can get your hearts ready. If you're saying today, I, I need prayer. I got something big going on in my life right now and I'm not going to let this make me feel unloved. I'm going to take it to God. I'm going to trust him. Then you come let us pray for you. If you need to bow down, whatever you need to do to get right before the Lord, you do it but respond to his love. He's running after you right now. He loves you. He just wants you to love him back. Encourage you to do so.